So, Eric, uh, you know this great website that our good friend Kevin Steck works for? Yes. Yes, I do know this. It's called Tumblr.com. Oh, gosh. And if ever, if ever there were a website featuring tiny animals falling downstairs, it would be Tumblr. Is it? Is that what they normally do? I think that's pretty much – I've only been on a few times, but that's what I've seen when oh. I've gone on there. Well, there's something far more epic that uh, we were presented with earlier this evening that is on Tumblr.com, the Tumblr of one Corgi Whisperer. And mm. it's uh, it's a pretty epic photo. It is – well, what's interesting about it is it's four paperbacks and then a hardcover. Uh, I believe <laughs> that's the, what's interesting about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, in all fairness, the paperback version of A Dance with Dragons just came out very recently. Oh, it did. So it's out now because that's, I believe it I, is. Yeah, I saw. Because some. I got to tell you, this, uh, this, these books are exactly the same books that I have. I have the four, uh, which come in a not very well made um, cardboard kind of stack that you can use all for it's in the all first fairness, four the paperbacks aren't very well made because I have pages falling out of a game of thrones you do I have some glue in mind that I can see oh, you can okay. see glue at the ends of the pages but, but at, yeah I anyway, will say it, that I did go out and purchase all the uh, the hardcover versions as well oh look at you you purist now people might wondering why the hell we started off the show this way and you are listening to a game of owns. It is game of owns. It's a podcast. Your ear holes. So you know what to do. This is a photo, though. We will, of course, share the link in the show notes mm-hmm. of all five books stacked upon each other. And what this person has gone and done is they have taken post its and tabbed every single death that occurs in the series from <laughs> a Game of Thrones <laughs> through a Dance with Dragons. And let me tell you, there are a lot. Of little colored tabs in this photo. This photo is epic. This photo is something that everyone should see. I want to thank Corgi Whisperer for doing this, if this is in fact their doing, who have meticulously tabbed every death in the series. I also want to thank Emily Rugburn on Twitter, who brought this to our attention and at replied Game of Owns. We'll talk a little bit more about at replying us a little later how to get our attention. This time, it worked. And I'm also thankful, because these deaths appear to be color-coded by book, whereas I I really was, was so relieved that, uh, so as not to be spoiled, that the deaths specifically do not appear to be mentioned, nor are they color-coded by house of person who is dying. So the Starks would be black, for instance. You know, things like that. I'm just grateful all over. However, this is a shocking amount, as you said, Micah, a shocking amount of deaths. And I assume some of it's red shirt characters and others not. But, I mean, just look at it. I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm definitely looking at it. And Take that in. and and I would say that George has gotten angrier as he has written, though <laughs> he seems to have had a little bit of a reprieve around A Feast for Crows. Because if you look at a Game of Thrones... And, and maybe it's just the lightness of the yellow tabs. Mm-hmm. There don't seem to be too many deaths. Then you go to a Clash of Kings, and it gets very pink. Then you go to a Storm of Swords, and there's a ton of orange. A Feast for Crows, eh, you know, like You I know, said, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? A book called A Feast for Crows. 
Um, which to me thinks more of buzzards actually than crows, but you know, birds coming to pick the flesh off the dead, the newly newly dead has the least amount of deaths. And so, um, well, you know, just by visual representation, but, but from what I gather, Mike, and you could correct me, of course, uh, please do if I'm wrong, you know, book four, mostly about introducing new characters, you know, takes place in a different area. It's more of an introduction than a, uh, kill fest the way that, Storm of Swords is a kill. And hell, who wouldn't need a reprieve after things like the Red Wedding take place in the third book? To your point, though, earlier, a book called A Feast for Crows, one would expect that after you have a Storm of Swords, there would be plenty to feast upon for the crows. So perhaps all the people are already dead. Therefore, there are not as many deaths to write. In a feast for There you go. He decimated the population of Westeros. You'll find words, stories about talented canteens that roll down the streets of these uh, uh, empty cities, deserted cities and towers. (laughs) This is not the wild, wild west. No, no, no. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that there are overlaps that take place, uh, especially in books four and five. So that also might be while when you get to a dance with dragons there seems to be a whole lot of green uh, okay okay so so people have been dying george has just not been talking about it he filled a whole book with the good stuff and then of course (laughs) you get you get back to dance with dragon it's like this person died this person died this person something that's nice also just to go back to this tabbed book is that really these these little slips of paper are are the only memoriam that some of these characters are going to get uh, especially from 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 George or or from from us as as readers who just have just glanced by them. We did um, mention uh, John and uh, the two wildlings that both himself and Stone Snake killed. Um, we have reached the sweet middle of a week that is encompassed on both ends. It's bookended by Jon Snow chapters and many women out there. I am sure many young ladies would love, would compete, would tear each other's faces off for the honor of being sandwiched between two Jon Snow chapters the way that Sansa is right now. It is hump day, it is the middle of the week, and we've got a Sansa chapter which will make you stir, and you may may lose your appetite as Sansa is doing, because everyone in King's Landing, where Sansa is currently, is growing ill with fear and anxiety. And this is the sort of environment that we are thrust into straight off the heels of Jon Snow letting Ygritte right. go, uh, which we talked about. We did. And before we get into the Sansa chapter, we had a few people send in their owns for the chapter that we did on Monday. Very well. And our good friend, Leslie Dingledine, wrote in to say... And this was in reference to the picture that Zach posted on Facebook when he posted the episode. She says, with an egret looking as pretty as this, who wouldn't have fallen under her spell? Owned for Rose Leslie for being so darn hot. I agree, Leslie. But she goes on to say, John owns his chapter for being too chivalrous to kill a lady. Aw. Well... You know, I I don't know if it was chivalry quite yet. Um, I certainly didn't expect to get some from the horse's own mouth uh, words of his inner thoughts of what actually motivated him 
in those scenes. It turns out we will get that, the next John chapter, but for right now, I'm not sure it was chivalry. It could have been just good old-fashioned cowardice. Wow, that's strong. I think somebody actually rebuts <laughs> you a little bit later on in one of the emails that we have. Oh, um, no. Well, let, let us see Andrew that. Robillard says, my own goes to you, Grit. Knowing there are worse places to end up than the belly of a shadow cat. Like being a white walker, perhaps. Oh, I just assumed she meant uh, Pike. Pike? <laughs> yeah, Pike sucks, dude. Weren't you there? I've never been to Pike. <laughs> What's it like this time of year? Oh, with Theon. You know, I mean, everybody's talking about the drowned god, and it's all salty and sea-swept, and bricks are... They haven't repaired the rocks in 20 years. I just assumed she meant Pike. But... Uh-huh. And uh, finally, Chase Smith wrote on... Actually, I should say, scrawled upon our wall... Yes, my let's own keep that alive. goes to the half hand for his management slash team building skills. <laughs> I don't know that the half hand particularly team builded John and Snake. Uh, I believe they're talking about uh, Stone Snake, but he did allow the pairing to happen. So let's okay. I, I see where they're going. We will uh, read some more of your owns a little bit later on in the episode. Those that had to deal with the Sansa chapter, which we're going to get into right now. Well, none of the men on the Night's Watch are knights any longer. However, there are still a few knights left in the world uh, in King's Landing. And a former knight, of course, the first guy we meet in this chapter is not a knight anymore. He is now a fool. It's Sir Dantos. I feel like he should have some cheesy-ass intro music. I feel like maybe we should whip that up. Here is uh, Sir Dantos the Fool's proper introduction. Okay, well, Sir Dantos, who we have not seen for just a little while, is still leading Sansa on about this rescue attempt. And we find out he's, he's still waiting, I guess, for a friend to deliver a boat to get Sansa out of there. And Sansa, really, at this point, is just ready to be rid of King's Landing. The pending threat of Stannis Baratheon coming and killing everyone is growing by the minutes, and she is sick of this, and she wants to be out. She tells Ser Dantos, now is the time to get me out. They're not paying attention to me. And I think Micah, I believe, she may have something. Yeah, uh, she's in a very tough position because every time she meets up with Ser Dantos, all she wants to do is leave. And she must feel a little bit as if she's being taken because there's never really any more information that she seems to be getting when these two come to meet with each other. And you pointed out something that I thought is really interesting when he mentions very specifically when my friend returns to the city. Oh, Mikey, you always draw attention to things that nobody else would have thought were important, but clearly they will be. Well, return implies that this person has left the city. Uh, Baelish! Uh. <laughs> Are you okay? What happened? I just had a Baelish attack. It's when I thought about Baelish and the prospect that we may actually hear from him or something about what happened to him or see him again, because he has been gone for like half the book at this point. That's been pretty annoying. 
Yeah, he's been gone for a while, and, and he was the first person that came to my mind when I read through this chapter. Uh, and he would obviously have a vested interest in keeping Sansa safe and getting her away from King's Landing just simply for the fact that he loves Catelyn and uh, she is Catelyn's daughter. So, uh, but then this is what ends to up see happening. How that plays out. Well, it's interesting because it has happened that way in the TV series, hasn't it? I mean, Baelish is the one who had the boat. Um, right. Is it not? Was it not? So, so I guess things are still lining up the way we've seen in season three of the show, but just kind of in a different way. Unless I, I certainly don't recall Sir Dantos in the TV series. Well, Sir Dantos in the TV series just doesn't have the same role. We see him. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually in the first episode of the season when Joffrey pours wine down his throat. Yes. So he's not exactly the same character in terms of level of involvement. I I think that they just decided to do away with him and instead just insert Baelish directly into that role. We know... Or the the Hound. Yes and no. Uh, I think with Baelish, at the end of Season 3, we see that he's going off to the Vale to speak with Lysa Aaron, and Sansa actually refuses to go with him. So... We're left in an interesting situation, and here we learn that Sir Dantos is, in fact, working for somebody else who has a vested interest in getting Sansa out of King's Landing. But at this point, it doesn't seem like it's going to come to fruition any time soon. And that's that's really it. Um, Sansa feels like, and rightly so, there's there's just little time left to escape under the radar. Um, and, and something we failed to mention is that everything around King's Landing right now smells and sounds and feels and looks a lot like Ash, because it is. From Pokemon? Uh, Tyrion, yes. Ash Ketchum is just burned into everyone's mind right now. Uh, Tyrion Lannister, of course, the imp, as everyone calls him these days, has taken to burning buildings and cities, or these little gathering areas, outside of the actual walls of the city. And this is kind of a a really important and crucial tactic uh, to create, I guess, open land where oncoming armies not only will be seen, but they, they won't have anything to burn themselves. Stannis is, is a little bit of a pyromaniac. The reasons are, are described in more detail in the book, especially the previous Tyrion chapter, where he talks about doing this. Um, and I believe he paid several of the people who were living just outside the wall, uh, you know, sort of compensation for, for having to destroy their homes. But this is what's going on. And, you know, unfortunately, it's just very gloomy because the ash and the soot and everything else that comes from burning houses down, burning these these things, these places right outside the city walls, it's a lot of pollution. A lot of shit is in the air right now. And that is sort of the backdrop by which this whole chapter takes place. And so Sansa feels that she has very little time to get away unnoticed. And, you know, it's really just uh, it's imagery in a way because it's kind of what her situation has been all along. She's, Ash? No, but she's surrounded by just this feeling of being suffocated and that she can't get out no matter how hard she tries, no matter what she does. She's just, to your point, in this very shitty situation. And mm-hmm. now we get to a point where the battle is brewing. It's it's going on. We're right at the you know, the first 
point of battle taking place between Stannis and Tyrion for, for right now. I mean, it's mentioned that the imp savages are out battling Stannis. And Stannis, to your point, is burning a ton of shit as well. So um, it's really just not a good situation for King's Landing to be in. So we're, it's interesting to kind of watch and see how Tyrion is going to mm. respond to this. This chapter is basically Britain broken up into what I think is quarters, um, the first of which is uh, Sansa and Ser Dantos. And I think this is really plays as sort of a goodbye um, kind of meeting because they're in the godswood this stuff is all about to happen and really Sansa tells him that, t that the time is now she has to leave now and Danto says no not yet it's not ready um, and so the prospect of her escaping with him has now gone to the, the, the far side of unlikely uh, to happen you know there was this great couple of weeks was it months where we were thinking that Dantos would in fact reclaim his honor and getting her and get her safely out of the city it just doesn't seem like that's happening and if if Dantos's friend is coming by a boat he's gonna get it's gonna get a little bottlenecked or crowded once he goes into Blackwater to try and you know park his boat uh, because <laughs> All of Blackwater is empty right now, and that for the reason for that is because Stannis has something like 10,000 men uh, sailing there. So it's just not a good option. It's not a good method. It's not a good escape route. Dantos should know this. He should have gotten his own, and if he were half as good a fool as he thinks he is, he should have overheard another way. Um, unfortunately for her, for us, he did not. And it doesn't seem like he's going to be the one to save Sansa. Not at this point, anyway. And it, you have to ask yourself the question, would Sansa be better off if Stannis won? And she was in Stannis's hands as opposed to Cersei's. I think she asks herself this question. And I think that – was it not Arya who um, was was feeling a similar – I'm trying to think of up at Harrenhal this was ever brought up too – like Stannis has gone kind of off the end. Maybe it was with Catelyn and, and, and the Baratheons. The fact that Catelyn was not able to form an alliance with Renly. It makes all the other Starks, it makes us uneasy to believe that all the other Starks will get along uh, well with Stannis or, or vice versa. That 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 somehow Stannis would, would cause Sansa harm or something. I just don't – I don't know exactly um, what he might do. It, it, I like to say anything would be better than having her with the Lannisters because we know what they want to do with her um, and that they're horrible people and inbred and all that stuff. But Stannis is kind of crazy at this point, so I really don't know. I mean, what if Melisandre says, oh, these uh, foreign magic users, these Starks who are tied to their wolves, that, is, uh, my lord, is so much more powerful than the blood of your heir. You know, if, if Melisandre got her hand on uh, someone of Stark descent... Could she not just say, oh, this, you know, we got to sacrifice this person. This will complete, you know, the cycle and, and pull some other random magic shit out of her ass. We just don't know. Yeah, it's it's a good point that uh, you bring up. It's it's something that's really up in the air. You, you're not able to know because as we're able to see later on, Stannis doesn't end up winning. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> It would have been interesting, certainly, uh, to see how Stannis would react to having a Stark uh, in his possession. 
Um, certainly, Renly would have. Yeah, but I guess turned Sansa over to Catelyn. We know that from uh, the conversations that they have earlier on. But right. we don't know how this uh, Baratheon brother would have reacted, and and who knows? I mean, Cersei may have tried to kill Sansa. Uh, even before Stannis made his way into King's Landing. Well, and if you're taking something from the the TV series where Sansa, where Cersei, sorry, has the poison, um, and she's poisoning her children to save their their lives, either save them from being tortured or raped or whatever it is that they they would do to that sort of thing. You know, you can easily imagine her being merciful on Sansa as well and killing her as well, um, or maybe just out of spite. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, we just don't know at this point. Uh, but I will say that really what, what Sansa's biggest deal is is she wants to be out of King's Landing before this happens. She doesn't want to wait around to see which side wins. She doesn't want to wait around to see if the Lannisters are going to comfort her, shelter her when this comes. She doesn't want to see if she's going to survive with Stannis. She wants to be out of the city before this big battle happens. And who wouldn't? Not even the Kingsguard wants to be there. Uh, you know, half the members or whatever. They, they, they really, apart from the fact that they don't have much of a choice but to defend their city, this is the thing that we've been reading about in Tyrion chapters too. People are, 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 are worried and everybody is, everybody's stomach is in knots over this whole impending thing. Even the Hound is pissed off. Yes. Well, I mean, that's not much different than any other time for the Hound. Uh, but Sansa even recollects, you know, to your point of not wanting to be in King's Landing, the great Sept of Baelor, she wants to see it destroyed because of what happened to Ned. And that tied a little bit into the whole religious aspect when she was talking about how Stannis burned the god's wood and how he subscribes now to this lord of light and how the pale yellow banners are the ones that really worry the city. You know, this this unsuspecting, <laughs> you know, almost demon-like element to this woman and Stannis and what this all means for them. But you mentioned the hounds, and let's move on to him, uh, mm -hmm. because on her way back from meeting with Ser Dantos, she does in fact run into the hound, and it almost seemed like she was aloof. She was not really paying much attention to where she was going, she was doing a bit of daydreaming, and she would have, from the sound of it, fallen to her death if the hound had not shown up. <laughs> The way I took it, and I don't really know for sure how close to, to her, what, bedchamber or whatever it is, that she was. But the way I took it is, like, he was basically out on her balcony or some shit. Like, I really took it, like, maybe if she has a tower to herself, she was – I, I got the feeling that he was waiting there for her. Is let, Let's just say that. Or, I mean, clearly he knew enough about who she was to save her, uh, you know, when she may have tripped, may or may not have, will she have, won't she have – uh, He's two for two so far. Exactly. This is the second time we've seen him be there exactly when Sansa needed to be. And an interesting bit about their relationship is that Sansa is still dreaming uh, quite often actually about this experience that she had where – to be honest, I, they really embellished it. I think you were right, Micah, in the series in just how close uh, to – severe trauma or harm Sansa got. Um, in the book, it just says that she was being pulled off of her horse. And that's enough. That's enough to, to frighten anybody, especially a young girl as Sansa is. But this mob 
that was shouting not even real words, just shouting cries because they were so angry, are pulling Sansa off of this horse in her dream. And this shiny steel blade comes, and it is the Hound, you know, killing people, cutting arms off, very much uh, Cantina in Moss Eisley from A New Hope style, arms just flying off, bleeding, um, you know, that sort of thing in her dream. And that's when she wakes up. But it's apparently a recurring dream that she's having, and the Hound has this closeness with Sansa, which is, again, I think over... I don't know, overemphasized. It's bigger in the TV series. But in this book, however, we kind of have to read between the lines and say, look, this is the second time he has shown up when she has perhaps needed him most. And what's he even doing there if he's not there on behalf of Joffrey? It's really the first time we get insight into what happened to her because, remember, the Hound just shows up with her after Tyrion is trying to get other members of the King's Guard to go and search for her. Right, it's a Tyrion chapter. Um, and he just shows up and she's bleeding from the face and, and the leg and stuff and uh, we don't hear anything about it. But this is this is what happened. You it's, know, he, he has rescued her. It is... You should wonder why he's there, I guess. I didn't really think of that. Um, but he is there nonetheless and Sansa and him kind of get into a little bit of a fight, a little bit of a lover's quarrel there. Uh, <laughs> and, and she just notes the fact. You know, she says that he's full of spite, he's full of anger, and he's a true dog who serves his master. Yeah, that was a bit of a revelation that she had, that this whole time he's been calling himself a dog, or or the Lannisters call him a dog, and, and he's kind of okay with it. When he starts calling himself that, and they really get into this argument where he's always like, cussing or brutal or angry she senses this anger coming off of him and can't even look him at the eye you know she comes to this revelation that he is a dog really that she can't compliment him i think i believe that reading the quote from the book would be the most powerful um thing to do at this moment well eric i'm guessing by that you mean that uh, i should read it and i just like pulling quotes out of thin air that i happen to have read several days ago so let's try this and see how i do This magic of editing helps, too. (laughs) (laughs) It says, He is a dog, just as he says. A half-wild, mean-tempered dog that bites any hand that tries to pet him, and yet will savage any man who tries to hurt his masters. Yep. And that summarizes the Hound. That's like his eulogy, even though he hasn't died yet. Right, and there's that moment, too, when she really takes a strong look at him, and she thinks to herself, it's not even the scars on his face that scare her it's the eyes it's just i guess the hollowness you know the soullessness mm-hmm. of his eyes yeah and you know there's this point where she's not able to look him in the face and eventually she does she's like well he saved my life i should probably look him in the eye it takes effort it takes a lot of effort and she finally does and what she finds there scares her um but they do more than look at each other they do more than you know, reminisce about that time he saved her life. I think they, I mean, they actually have a conversation about what sort of man Stannis is because this this pending threat, again, everybody's talking about it. Um, and there's just some interesting quotes about how the Hound feels. And it really just raises the question again what he's doing here, uh, you know, with Sansa. But at the same time, it's you can take the conversations for what they are um, and kind of try and gleam things about them. For instance, um, Clegane, who is obviously the Hound, uh, here's a quote from the book. 
Uh, Clegane's eyes turned toward the distant fires. All this burning, he said, he sheathed his sword, only cowards fight with fire. And I believe he's referring to a personal experience from his childhood there, but I digress. His brother. Sa- Sansa says, Lord Stannis is no coward. And he says, he's not the man his brother was either. Robert never let a little thing like a river stop him. Yeah, but I think that's also when the Hound is speaking about fire. And he's also, from personal experience, certainly, but I also think that that causes him to overlook and to say what what you just said about, was it only cowards use fire? I don't necessarily believe that to be true. I, I think that that's stemming from his own uh, experience with his brother and that story that we we learned about them earlier on in the series. I don't necessarily believe it to be true that fire that fire is only used by cowards. You can certainly use fire to your advantage. Uh, it doesn't make you a coward. Well, fire could be life, Micah, or it could be death. <laughs> to quote That's your true. own, own from the it is known, it is known. But Sansa calls him out on that same thing because she's arguing with him. She's saying, "No, Stannis is not a coward." She asks the Hound in this passage, "What will you do when he crosses?" And he says, "Fight, kill, die, maybe." And she says, "Aren't you afraid? The gods might send you down to some terrible hell for all the evil you've done." And he says, "What evil? What gods?" And she says, "The gods who made us all." And in a chapter that really is between all these other chapters where gods, stuff is happening with gods, stuff is happening with magic. It's nice to have a nice little theological discussion between this huge, tough assassin and Sansa, who you know previously said that the Sept was beautiful and now wouldn't mind if it was burned down. This whole book is, you know, people lose their faith, people gain their faith, and people change their faith. Um, and so it's interesting to see these things uh, happen. The Hound obviously just has a very bitter, very negative um, feeling about it all. He said, tell me, little bird, what kind of god makes a monster like the imp or a half-wit like Lady Tonda's daughter? If they are gods, they made sheep so wolves could eat mutton, and they made the weak for the strong to play with. Again, he's not a religious man. I think no, that's but, very, very clear, and I don't know what uh, you know, at the end of the day, he really looks to in that sense, if anything. Mm-hmm. But Sansa's reply is the reason you gotta like her in this chapter. She says, "True knights protect the weak." Um, now, of course, he will say, as he does, that there are no true knights. But Sansa has it really. She has just come from Sir Dantos, a former knight who really is a knight, but he's posing as a fool that sort of thing. She's looking for the Hound, I think, in some small way, to be her knight in Shining Armor, to be the one who takes her away, even though he's so foul, even though he's so angry. Um, she's really trying to to see if he's going to be the one who takes her away from all of this. Instead, he's there saying, no, that doesn't exist. Yeah. So she is let down for the second time in this chapter. And eventually they do part ways after they're bit of a spat there and Mm -hmm. uh we get Sansa reliving uh this nightmare that she went through and it's it's actually a nightmare that she does have about the riot uh with all these people sort of clawing at her and she wakes up and to me there's a quote that really kind of summarizes everything and, and is my own for the chapter. I'll just throw it out there. Oh, wow. Okay. It says, It was if her own body had betrayed her to Joffrey, 
unfurling a banner of Lannister crimson for all the world to see. Yeah, this this symbology here, this is the reason that we read George R. R. Martin. Um, it essentially with what happens with Sansa in this chapter, we mentioned the beginning of the chapter, she wants to get out of King's Landing. It's as if she knew subconsciously on some unconscious level, well, time is running out regardless, but now in particular, you know, whereas at the beginning of the chapter, nobody was paying her any attention. Now, as soon as a handmaiden or a bedmaiden comes into the room and sees what has happened with Sansa, which is that she's now a woman, um, the queen will find out, and her wedding to Joffrey will be in its in 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 the, in the express stages, essentially. Right, and she does end up being brought before the queen. It's a very uh, unique conversation, I think, between the two of them, because you get a lot of information uh, from Cersei in this particular moment uh, when he's talking. I'm sorry, when he uh, when she uh, <laughs> is talking with Sansa. Uh, you know, she goes through and she talks about how Robert would leave her to go hunt when she gave birth to "quote unquote" his children, um, mm. and she really went into detail about how she labored uh, for a good period of time uh, with Joffrey. And that's what was weird about this conversation because she sits her in the room. Um, you know, Sansa comes up and. Cersei says, do you know what this means? Do you know what, what has just happened with you? Do you know what this means for you and, and, and me and, and what's going to happen? And she says, yes, you know, I will now be wed to Joffrey or whatever is going to happen. And, and Cersei says, okay, how do you feel about that? And Sansa says, well, Joffrey's the, you know, the, 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 the king, you know, something, some line about him being the love of her life. And Cersei says, you really have to get new lies. Um, you know, she knows that the Lannisters have fallen out of Sansa's favor for obvious reasons. And when she starts talking about her labor process with Joffrey is by saying the line that Joffrey was always a, a bit difficult. He, he was always a little tough to get along with or to, to work with. You know, he doesn't work well with others. And it was weird because on the one hand, I'm thinking Cersei should be so angry right now um, that she's going to have to force Sansa into this. And instead, she appears to be taking it quite coolly. She's like, well, you'll never love the king, but you'll love his kids. Mm-hmm. And she just kind of retreats down memory lane into her, her own you know, history of Robert, of being left, you know, essentially to give birth. And you know, he did bring her surprises, to Robert's credit, when he came back. But really, <laughs> he, he just never was there. For Cersei, when she apparently really much needed him, and he certainly wasn't the tender. Well, he wasn't loving. the father, so <laughs> he wasn't the father. But he didn't know that. He, he didn't know that. He didn't He's know the king. that. He didn't know that. Okay. He never he did either. No, he still never did. Jamie, of course, who we think was the father, if we don't know that for sure, I think we do, um, was there. However, and 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 there's a bit of a fun reference to the Kingslayer. I I will say that it, it is my own of the chapter since since you I believe gave yours. Um Jamie essentially was told uh by one of the many people who was helping Cersei give birth that he could not be in the room when that happened. And his reply was um to the men which which of them would propose to hold him back. Mm-hmm. Um he, he used his own 
threatening uh, presence to basically gain entry and comfort his sister mm. in her time of birth and be there when Robert wasn't. Now, um, I'm assuming there's got to be a meme out there somewhere of you know, Jamie Lannister trying to burst into the delivery room and being held back by uh, several uh, Lannister guards or whomever would be responsible for telling him that he would not be allowed uh, into the delivery room. Um, the other thing to uh, to mention here, though, is that it's noted that not only was Jamie there, but so was Grandmeister Pycelle, and I think that's just to Ugh. stress the alliance that exists. Uh, I wouldn't want him there, Cersei creepy old man. And uh, as I call him, GMP, Grandmaster. <laughs> GMP. <laughs> I switched the Maester to Master, kind of like Grandmaster Flash. Yeah, Grandmaster, like a uh, yeah, like a very skilled ninja. But uh, GMP for short. That's how we refer to him in this show. Well, apart from why GMP was there, besides to administer some drugs, because, hey, let's face it, it's the modern world. Let's use medicine to help us feel better during one of the most horrific experiences the human body can be put through. Um, But, you know, otherwise, Sansa is getting this information from Cersei. It really, to me, though, it just leaves me unsettled. And and Cersei, the chapter ends with Cersei and Sansa. and Cersei's, I guess, what will end up being a famous speech, that love is poison. Right, and I thought the show did a great job of really mirroring a lot of the lines that are in the end of this particular chapter. And you know, I thought it was really powerful when she told Sansa, basically, the, the love that Jamie showed her, that Joffrey would never show her any such devotion. So basically, he, even though he's not Robert's son... Would, would basically act the same, if not worse, towards her uh, as, as Robert did towards Cersei. Yeah, it's Cersei is, is really kind of sociopathic in this moment. She's telling Sansa that uh, she will not be treated well. Uh, she, in fact, she says, uh, remember she mentions Arya? And the yeah, fact that, I thought that was, that, that was wild. Like, I, didn't, I never remembered any mention of this, and I thought that this was such a huge point. Yeah, she, she basically says, remember way back when your wolf or uh, Arya's wolf bit Joffrey. Well, you saw that, and you witnessed him being shamed by your sister. So because of the actions of your sister, he's never going to let you live it down. He's never going to be tender to you because you saw him um, in that moment of weakness. And so... She basically – this is Cersei talking. This isn't Joffrey saying, oh, you know, you saw that happen, so I'm going to be a dick to you. This is Cersei saying, I know how my son's brain works, and you're never going to get on his good side ever again. He's just going to toy with you. He's going to use you. And we, similarly as a family, are going to use this alliance to strengthen – you know, to to make things work on the political end. She just tells Sansa that she's in for the worst experience of her life. And the only silver lining is, well, you love your kids. You'll never love the king, but – you love the king. You love the king's kids. She better uh, get Siri on the phone and ask her to dial Sir Dantos as quickly as possible because things went from being kind of bad to really fucking bad in a very short period of time. Yeah, and that's kind of where this chapter leaves us. And and really, it was a time bomb. Like I said, Sansa from the beginning knew that it was her time to get out of King's Landing and try as she might to cover up the evidence of what happened to her. You got to give her props for trying to set everything on fire. Um, unfortunately, she as if there wasn't enough fire. As if there wasn't enough fire, she more. does try her own hand at pyromania in this 
in the or, yes. um, in this chapter. But, but but really though, all she manages to do is to ruin a few of her dresses, which is a real shame. But this is actually a great way to transition into some owns that got sent in. Obviously, Eric, you and I have already given our owns uh, for this chapter, but there's actually a email, I believe it is, that we got that relates to this particular chapter and uh, one of the lines that uh, I had in my notes was about uh, Robert's bastards that Cersei mentioned and how they always gurgled at him. Yes! Joffrey, on the other hand, never liked to be picked up. This was an interesting point. Who is that email from? So I know I said that it was an email, but it is actually a Facebook post uh, that came from Phil... Etherington, and uh, he says, My own for Sansa 4 has to be Cersei sharing some insight into her personal philosophy. Quote, Love is poison, a sweet poison, yes, but it will kill you all the same. Clearly, she has no taste for persuasion and wants to rule like her father with a steel fist, to be feared. Not going to work for petite beauty with no allies. Uh, He goes on to say, and this ties into what we just mentioned, also, Cersei gives Sansa some big clues that Joffrey is illegitimate. Is she clever enough to put it together? I don't think that's Cersei's point. I don't think that's Cersei's point at all is to somehow give Sansa this clue or this key that Joffrey is illegitimate and that's the reason he never liked his his father. I, I think Cersei is really just kind of talking about how, how Robert wanted the happiness, always wanted the happy googly-eyed babies. Coincidentally, they were the ones he was actually the fathers of. But whenever times were tough, whenever she's giving labor, he's out hunting. Whenever she has a kid that doesn't coo every time or let him put his finger in their mouth or you know whatever it was that, that she was going on about with Robert, he walks away. He doesn't care. And so that's really more of Cersei saying how inattentive her husband was. I think. However, us readers, of course it's there in the text. Yeah. Of course right. it's I there in the text for us readers it, to go. It's more for the readers. Yeah. It's not necessarily for Sansa. I think it's just to continue to lend credence to the fact that Joffrey is not Robert's son. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I do like the point that's made, I will say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, we also got a tweet related to uh, this chapter. Eric, why don't you uh, go ahead and read it? This is from Nicole, at last seven on Twitter. Uh, They said, I finally caught up with Game of Owns. Hey, we give you our own, Nicole, for catching up with us in our read-along. Nicole says, my own for the Sansa chapter goes to Sansa's uterus for showing her how decidedly unmagical menstruation can be. Oh, yes, that is true. That is and own of itself. And there's a uh, conversation that Sansa has with Cersei where Cersei says, well, how did you expect it to go? And Sansa says, you know, I thought it would be a little bit more magical. Um, So that is a very valid own. Thank you, Nicole, for sending that in and own to you for catching up with us. Yes. uh, You know, Eric and I can obviously not speak uh, to this experience, so uh, we apologize. And um, But we are thankful yeah, well, I think we're definitely thankful for that fact. Uh, it's interesting because in a lot of interviews that he's done, uh, George R. R. Martin has always said that Sansa is probably the most difficult character 
uh, for him to write. And this chapter would be a perfect example as to why. But that's kind of why it works as like, you know, you use your imagination. And I think it, I think that I, I would venture to say that this is one of those most impactful chapters because he did that. Um, you know, to take yourself out of an experience, that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and so uh, if you'd like to reach us, just like Nicole did, you can do so by tweeting at us at Game of Owns. We do have a couple more emails here before we wrap up the show. They're a little bit uh, spread across the board in terms of topics. Uh, I'll take the first one here. It's from Abby Lamar, and she says, Forgive me. I'm only on page 164 of A Game of Thrones because I'm a terribly slow reader. And more importantly, I spend most of my Game of Thrones obsessing time listening to Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Now we got it. Uh, I'm on the brand chapter when he's flying above Westeros in a dream sequence, seeing everything that's happening in Westeros and Essos. Then I had a thought. Do you think Bran enjoyed climbing so much because it was his own version of flying before he learned of his warging abilities. I can totally get behind the thought of climbing being likened to flying. Furthermore, he had to climb to the top of the tower which Jamie pushed him off in order to be able to fly away. Whoa, deep, or whoa, looking for something that isn't there. <laughs> I think there are various um, similarities, parallels, uh, allegories to climbing high and being and, and and being sort of above the earth uh, in that way and then being able to warg into a bird and being above the earth also there's the the fact that he was you know only after he was crippled could he really realize his true potential to leave his body uh, that sort of thing he's traveling greater distances with his mind than he ever could on foot things like this I think it's all there in the in the in the books so uh, yes I believe Abby that you are completely correct in in making that comparison um i believe it's intended you know i believe it's very intentional for that sort of thing to happen to be there yeah i, d I definitely like uh that idea the uh next email comes from joe schaefer and he says you should be able to look a man in the eye and hear him out before killing him if you can't look a man in the eye then maybe he doesn't deserve to die he is of course paraphrasing uh but that was ned's advice to his sons on execution it was not a weakness that John refused to kill Ygritte, like Eric thinks. <laughs> it was John following his own values. Having honor is not a weakness. It just so happens it doesn't work out for Ned. Rob did not act honorably in his failure as he broke a marriage contract. So uh, Joe, of course, responding to a comment uh, Eric made on Monday's episode. Eric, do you care to reply? Oh, oh yeah, it's just a matter of... You know, is John being weak? Is John being honorable? I'm not 100% convinced that the reason he didn't kill Ygritte was because he was being honorable or doing the honorable thing. In fact, but we'll find out in the next chapter kind of what was going through his head at the time because he does confess it to, uh, I believe it's the half-hand, um, sort of what he was thinking. But we'll just have to find out if it's honor or if it's due to weakness. I think it's weakness still. Yeah, I, th I think my response to that would be He's now a member of the Night's Watch, so whatever he was before is put to the side because he has a certain set of orders that he is instructed to follow, and, and he chooses not to follow them. Exactly. It's dishonorable. 
to not do what is constantly – to not constantly do without question what is in the best interest of the Night's Watch. I feel like we could all agree that what's in the interest of the Night's Watch is to kill this girl. Certainly not to let her go completely away to back right. to wherever it is she came from. Oh, hell no. And then finally an email from Stephen Adewell of Race for the Iron Throne with a newly minted Ph.D. in history. So uh, congratulations, Steve, on your new Ph.D. Uh, he says, hey, Goo, I think Eric might have been getting a bit too literal regarding Blood of the Dragon and fire invincibility. George R. R. Martin has said in multiple interviews that the immunity Danny experienced during the weakening, I think he means awakening, or maybe not. It's a uh, PhD the, guy. Don't question him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of the eggs was a one-off due to the blood magic involved but that if she tried it any other time, she'd have fried. In terms of what Blood of the Dragon or True Dragon means, it usually refers to a Targaryen who lives up to the ideal of Aegon the Conqueror, uh, like Jaehaerys or Daemon, the young dragon, as opposed to one of the bad Targaryens, like Aerys the Mad or Maegar the Cruel. Interesting. Yes, I can see how historically Targaryens and the fact that their uh, association with the dragon may not be entirely due to the fact that every single one of them had a pet dragon or, for instance, could not be burned, that sort of thing. Uh, but actually, when I think about Danny um, and her immunity to, to fire, I'm actually, the farthest thing from my mind is that scene where she lives in fire overnight as Mary Mazder burns in hell and uh, the dragons are born. I think way early in the beginning of the book, before she realizes her true potential, or the fact that it isn't in fact Viserys, who is awesome and going to rule the world, um, she's just having a bath. And, you know, her handmaiden comes in and gasps and shrieks and says, oh my gosh, you, you can't be in there. It's super, super hot water. It's the hottest water we've ever made. And Danny's just chilling in it. So I think it, I think there's more to it, really than having just survived that fire. Hot water in that bath does not bother Danny whatsoever. I think, you know, I, I'd have to read some, some George R. R. Martin interviews um, f to be sure, but there are hints way early on about hotness not bothering Danny even a little bit. Until she gets burned the way John gets burned and starts bitching about it every one of her chapters comes around, or every time one of her chapters comes around, I'm going to go and say she's probably immune most of the time uh, to minor flames at the very least, and that that is a magical power that I would like to see in all other Targaryens, even if some of them don't. Yeah, I would definitely trust in what uh, George had to say about that particular instance, uh, but uh, definitely good feedback to get from our PhD friend. So I should actually say, should I not Dr. Stephen Adewell? Yes, and congratulations, Dr. Adewell, for your PhD, newly minted, as you note, in history, that's actually really, really freaking incredible. Um, that's awesome. That's yeah. I mean, getting a doctorate in this day and age when there are so many distractions, so many alternatives, and in history, I hope that you use that to shape young minds, or at least to do to follow your passion. Clearly, it's a passion; otherwise, you wouldn't have do it. So, uh, wouldn't do it this far. But uh, we just hats off to you, sir. And so, if you would like to write into us, like Stephen, Joe, and Abby did, you can do so at contact at gameofowns.com. You can also leave us a comment 
on the various posts we do for this podcast on winteriscoming.net. We do read those on the show as well. It's true. And now that the Sansa chapter is over, we can get back to Jon Snow. I liked how you uh, you trailed off there a bit. Did I? When you were saying snow, it kind snow! of was almost like an echo. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so on uh, Friday's episode, we will return to visit with Jon after he's let Egret slip through his fingers by choice. You know, I think there are a few similarities between what happened in this chapter and what happens to John in the next chapter. Nothing having to do with burning bedsheets, thank God, but um, just in the way some of the characters react to him. And uh, more on that on Friday. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, do not forget to rate us and post a review on iTunes. We are on the iTunes store. In the month of November, nothing less than five stars is acceptable. We actually brought back a threat on Monday's episode. It is excellent. Yes. Uh, that still and I've not seen any new reviews, so uh, <laughs> I don't know if the threat was that good that it's just uh, you know, struck you all into silence. But please uh, do go and give us uh, some feedback on the show. We really appreciate. You it. know, I really liked how you took all the sort of the environment that we were in in last chapter and applied it to the threat. It really worked, but. The fact that nobody's posted a review... It worked too well. Yeah, well, the fact that no one's posted a review yet, not that we're really, like, really squeezing you guys for one. Okay, the reviews we've gotten, we're very pleased with the amount and the consistency. You guys have been lovely. Um, but it is another John chapter next week, so what crazy new things involving shadow cats and whites could we possibly come up with next? Ooh, let's think. You don't want to find out. You want to review us. So right. we thank everybody. And uh, be sure to send us your owns for this upcoming Friday episode. We will, of course, just like we did on Monday and today's episode, we will read them. It is John chapter 7 in A Clash of Kings. Well, thank you, everybody. That concludes our Wednesday episode. We'll see you on Friday. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Mike Tannenbaum. Peace. Deuces. Deuces.